from the point that a company is like, hey, I want to make X, they need to be expecting that the packaging of X or X itself is going to mm-hmm. end up where it's not supposed to. Mm-hmm. So they need to, to be planning it from that perspective. You know, um, if this doesn't end up where it's supposed to, is it going to harm some living organism, including my own child? You know, it's like mm-hmm. I need, need to have them go into that with that mentality, you know, yeah. um, and design their, their products and their packaging appropriately for that. Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. In today's episode, we're chatting with Dr. Sherry Mason, a leading expert on plastic pollution. Her award-winning work has drawn international attention to the threat of microplastics in our waters and led to the passage of national legislation banning microbeads. She serves as Director of Sustainability at Penn State Erie, the Behrend College. Welcome, Sherry. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me and call me Sam. Got it. Um, I am super excited to chat with you today. On a couple of our previous episodes, we've talked a little bit about plastic pollution and our Adopt-A-Beach program. Um, But I want to start with you with a bit of history, even though it wasn't all that long ago. Um, You were the researcher that really broke the story about plastics, about microplastics rather, in the Great Lakes with the discovery that plastic microbeads from personal care products like face washes were in the lakes in alarming numbers. And I've always been curious, what spurred that line of research? Um, Well, it really just started with the I mean, this is what's great about science, right? It always starts with just a question. Um, So um, I went out on uh, the flagship Niagara, um, the U.S. Brig Niagara, um, whose home port is is Erie, Pennsylvania, where I now live. At the time, I didn't live here, but I was out there um, to teach it, to help co-teach an environmental science course um, in 2011. So it's getting on like 10 years now (laughs) since we did this. So... um, you know, uh, it was 2011 and we were out there and at the time I was actually an atmospheric chemist. So my role was to talk about how um, pollutants end up in the Great Lakes through atmospheric deposition. So, so things falling out of the sky, you know, the, the pops, the PCBs and PHs and, and various mm-hmm. kind of chemicals that um, we know, um, you know, it's kind of well known that the Great Lakes are um, storage media for these chemicals. Um, But while I was out there and I was looking at the water, I just was kind of reminded about everything that I had seen, heard, and read about plastic pollution Mm. in the oceans. Um, And I wondered, as much as you hear about the oceans, I wonder if there's plastic in the Great Lakes. Mm. Um, And so it really started with that question. I um, came back to to shore and did a literature review and was kind kind of really pretty surprised that there wasn't already any information on it. I did some calling around at NGOs like the Alliance for the Great Lakes. And I was like, hey, what can you tell me about plastic in the Great Lakes? And everyone's like, yeah, we know nothing. We have no data. We find bags. You know, I mean, it was, Mm -hmm. was um, you know, it was, there was no like good science on it. It was, it was, you know, a lot of beach surveys, um, but none out in the actual open water. Um, so I contacted my colleague and I said, hey, what do you think about next year? We have just, I don't know, throw a net out and see if we catch anything. <laughs> and uh, he's like, sure, but it's, 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 your, it's your piece. You know, you're in charge of it. Um, 
which means I had to figure out kind of how we were going to go about doing this, get the funding and all of that. Um, and so that's really how it started. And so I wasn't, you know, we didn't go into it looking for microbeads per se. We didn't even go into it looking for microplastics. We just mm. went out looking to see if there was plastic pollution. Um, to be honest, I really thought we would be finding bags and bottles, big mm. identifiable items, um, you know, and it's just, I don't think anyone really kind of had the awareness that, you know, there's a lot of breakage of plastics on land before it even makes its way into the water. And so, you know, the vast majority, it's like 97% of the pieces of plastic we pick out of the Great Lakes are smaller than mm -hmm. uh, five millimeters in size. And so that's just, that's just the data. Um, and um, one of the microplastics that we were able to identify a source for, right? So, I mean, this is always kind of an elusive thing in plastic pollution is we find a piece, a small piece of plastic mm -hmm. the size of rice out in the water and kind of where did that come from um, is always kind of an elusive um, goal for us. Um, and when we found these, these small spherical pellets of plastic, we decided to do you know, basically some investigation and where could these possibly be coming from? Um, and through a process of elimination ended up at the microbeads um, and got some really good data, obviously, that, that established that, you know, we pulled microbeads out of products and we compared mm -hmm. them to what we found in the Great Lakes and were able to, to provide enough kind of scientific validation that probably what we were finding in the Great Lakes were these microbeads coming from personal care products. Um, and so that was probably the big kind of the big, I don't know, um, event from that first um, sampling that we did in 2012 um, led to legislation. Um, but it, it wasn't like we went into it with that intent. It was a pretty simple question. And, you know, one of the things I'm always really curious about, and you touched on this, is, you know, we hear there's so much data, which I think is important about plastic pollution in the oceans, but there's so little, as you're pointing out, about plastic pollution in the Great Lakes. And the Great Lakes are our drinking water. Um, why do you think there's that disparity? So, I mean, this field of research started in the oceans, right? Um, the very first um, kind of scientific report actually was the North Atlantic Ocean and the Sargasso Sea. Um, looking for sargassum, and they kept catching plastic as a byproduct, right? As a bycatch. They didn't, they weren't looking for plastic. They kept finding plastic. This was in the early 1970s. I think it was 1972, the paper came out in Science. Um, and so that was the first report, and it started in the North Atlantic Ocean. The, the topic really caught fire with uh, Captain Charles Moore work in the North Pacific Ocean and in the area that's now a affectionately referred to as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. So I think it really started in the world's oceans. And so that's where a lot of the science was, you know, because that's where it was being found. It was kind of really interesting. I mean, when I, you know, had that question pop into my head in 2011, I, I had been keeping my, my finger on like, you know, kind of the pulse of plastic pollution, just as a, an environmental scientist, just reading articles here and there. Um, and it had never occurred to me that nobody was looking in fresh water until I had that question pop into my head in 2011. And what was kind of funny is, you know, serendipity and hive mind or something, you know, there was three of us 
across the globe um, that all had this question kind of pop into our head in this at the same point in time um, in 2011 because you see the first the first reports um, in freshwater came out in it's late 2012 and then mm -hmm. um, two more papers came out ours and, and one other in, in early 2013. So, you know, basically we all had the same question happen to us at the same time. As much as we know about plastic pollution in salt water, what about fresh water? We need fresh water for life. We drink fresh water. Mm -hmm. You know, we need, we, we, you know, water our crops, <laughs> right? Um, and it seemed like we all had the same question at the, you know, like I said, the three of us had that same question kind of pop into our head at the same point in time, which is kind of interesting. And so that's really when the attention, some attention, you know, shifted mm -hmm. from salt water into fresh water. Um, still salt water, I think it's the vast majority of the attention. Um, and I know that those of us who study freshwater are kind of constantly, you know, banging on that drum. Mm -hmm. I'm part of a United Nations working group. Um, I was basically kind of writing the the book on on how you go about doing this research. Mm. Um, and because it was the United Nations, and because the charge given to us was to to focus on saltwater, that that was the the focus. But I kept like we have to mention freshwater in there. It was, it's the same. Mm -hmm. It's, right. It doesn't matter if you're looking in an ocean or a great big lake. It's the same method. So like we've got to mention freshwater in there over and over and over again. I just kept beating that drum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> on this working group. I'm like, freshwater, freshwater, freshwater. So, you know, we and you see it. I mean, you definitely see it in the literature. I mean, the the quantity of of papers that come out in freshwater now is is kind of overwhelming. Um, so we, we do get more attention than we used to, which is good. That's great. And, you know, I think it's, let's talk a little bit about why micro, microplastics are a problem. You know, obviously anything in our drinking water that isn't supposed to be there is not good, but it's, you know, you, you talked about a little bit touched on this, this dichotomy of, you know, we hear, see in the oceans, you know, there's the great Pacific garbage patch. There are these big patches of you can see the pollution, you can see the plastic floating out there. But when you look out on the Great Lakes, you don't see that, right? It looks, they look kind of nice, right? They look pretty yeah. nice, actually. Um, and so, but these tiny plastic pieces that we can't see, what's the risk? What's the, what's the impact to wildlife and to humans from this tiny plastic? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's almost more concerning the stuff you can't see as opposed to the stuff you can, because that means it's very easily ingested. And whether you're talking about a turtle, a fish, a plankton or a human, you know, it's it's the same. It's very easily ingested. Um, and that's the problem. I mean, ultimately, in a nutshell, um, and there's no doubt, by the way. Um, that we are ingesting these things, right? I mean, just in the last couple of years, we've had reports come out. We found it first in, in human feces, mm -hmm. and then we found it in the placental barrier. So on both the maternal and the fetal size. Mm -hmm. So it's it's also, we know it's crossing that um, boundary. Um, so it's getting into us even before we're born. Um, you know, and then just recently, earlier this year, um, you know, 2022, we found it in blood and we found it in, in the deepest recesses of our lungs. Mm. So they were, that was really surprising to the researchers is, is they thought it would get filtered out higher in the lungs, but the fact that it made it to like the, the depths of the lungs that it had was very concerning to them. Um, and so, you know, it's the, the impacts of this are, 
there's kind of twofold. I mean, one is is the plastic itself, and that's the that to be honest, that's the area we know the least about. Um, but the area that we know more about is that you know plastics we we add chemicals in their manufacture um, and chemicals will absorb or stick to the outside of the plastic mm -hmm. when it's out in the environment. Um, and so it acts as a way to move these chemicals into um, humans and other living organisms. And that part of it we know more about, like most, many of those chemicals have already been identified as endocrine disruptors, they're carcinogens, mm -hmm. they're mutagens, you know, um, and when I say endocrine disruptors, that means they mimic the hormones of a, a human, of a person. Um, and hormones are the chemical messengers. So when you're, when you're messing with that, it's like that game of telephone that mm. we've all played in camp, right? Where you, you're going around, <laughs> you, you start with a sentence, and by the time you get to the end, it's completely morphed. Mm -hmm. um, it's that same kind of thing. When you start messing with that messaging, it, it changes what is being told in your body to do. And so depending upon when that happens and to what extent it happens and how long that is happening for, it can cause a whole suite of human health impacts. So things that have been associated with endocrine disrupting chemicals are, are certain types of cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so ovarian cancer and prostate cancer in men. Um, the other kind of impacts on um, ferti fertility kind of issues. So mm. uh, intergenerational penal size is getting smaller. Sperm counts are going down. Um, the window for women to actually conceive is getting narrower. Mm. Um, we also see this associated with um, things like ADHD and mm -hmm. um, obesity in children under the age of six months. So it's it, it, it's a wide range of human health impacts that are associated with these chemicals. And, you know, plastics are not the only place that we find these chemicals, but plastics are one way that these chemicals move into people. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the area that we probably know the most about. Um, and if people are interested in kind of reading more about this, um, one great book is uh, Countdown by Dr. Shauna Swan. It came out in 2021. Um, and um, another great book, though it's a little bit older, is called Our Stolen Future by Theo Colburn. And she's mm. one of the, the grandmother of endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, that book came out in the late 1990s. But it's all the same. Like you read it and you're like, are you sure this came out in like 99? No way. Like this is just, it could be yesterday. You know, it's, it's all the same kind of information and it's, it's a really well-written. She, she co-wrote it with um, uh, somebody from the New York times, I think. And uh, it's just a really well-written well book. So those are two great books to, to read if you want to get some more information on that. So that area we know more about, but the plastic itself, that's kind of the forefront of um, the questions and, and, you know, they're seeing things like it induces oxidative stress, it, it affects mm -hmm. chemical signaling, um, but, you know, it's going to take some time before we fully kind of understand the impacts that those are having, um, which really does kind of allude to the fact that we need to be acting now. We don't need to wait mm -hmm. for all the science to come out, you know, to fully understand. We, we know it's not, it's not going to be good, so let's, you know, kind of work on this as, a, as an issue now. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that I hear, you know, people think that, you know, certainly our Adopt-a-Beach program is great. We have lots of volunteers who are, you know, cleaning up that 
the pollution off the beaches before it gets into the lakes. But that's ultimately, it's a huge effort, but it's ultimately a drop in the bucket, right? And once this these microplastics are out in the lakes, you, you probably really can't get them out of there. So, you know, thinking about pre uh, prevention really is kind of where we need to be here. And I love the phrase, I've heard you say this, and I'm going to quote you. You say, I'm not anti-plastic, I'm anti-stupid plastic. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, look, as a chemist, I can understand that plastic has um, very unique kind of place in our society. You know, it, it has properties that we cannot get from other materials. Um, so like one example that I tend to give a lot is, is cars, right? Cars have become a whole lot more fuel efficient because um, rather than being completely made out of metal, a lot of parts are now plastic. Um, and so it, it lightens the, the car and it allows it to be much more fuel efficient. And, and so I can, I can see the appreciation of that. Um, but I can tell you, and I'm sure you know this from your Adopt-A-Beach program, when we go out looking in the environment for plastics, that's not the vast majority of the plastic that we find. And when you look on data on, you know, where plastic is, is made, like, you know, the breakdown of how, you know, the automotive industry is, is a tiny little sliver, as is, you know, healthcare is another mm -hmm. big one, right, in our time of COVID and kind of coming out of COVID. You know, a lot of people love to point to, you know, the healthcare and, and the importance of that, you know, protective gear. Absolutely. But that is like a tiny sliver. Mm -hmm. It's like it's less than 10 percent of the market. You know, so when you're talking about a tiny sliver, that's what I mean. It's it's pretty small piece of the overall plastics market. Um, and when we go out in the environment, you know, we find masks, we find gloves, but that's not the vast majority of what we're finding. The vast majority of what we're finding um, when we're talking about big items that you can identify um, is bottles, mm -hmm. it's food wrappers, it's straws, you know, and all the, it's a lot of these things where you're just like, really, do we need to make this out of plastic? You know, like, I carry this with me everywhere I go. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm holding up a stainless steel mug, um, you know, and I keep it filled with, you know, and you can put all sorts of beverages in it. You know, I have, I currently have it filled with water, but in the morning I'll have it with coffee or tea, you know, and sometimes I might even slip a margarita in there in the evening, you know, <laughs> um, something like that. So, you know, there, there are other options, you know, for a lot of, the, the plastic items we have. And that's where I get, I get really frustrated. I, I think we can find another way to bring our groceries home from the grocery store than a plastic bag, especially a plastic bag that tends to rip. So we mm -hmm. double bag it, you know, and then you find them stuck in trees. And, you know, I, I think we can find another way. And that is the biggest piece. It's like almost 50% of the market are these single use disposable mm -hmm. plastic products. So it's, it's the easiest to find replacements for, and it's the biggest piece of the pie. So that's really where I, I tend to focus people's attention. You mm -hmm. know, let's start there. Let's start with eliminating plastic in those places. And then we can think about in this situation, is plastic the best? Maybe we can find a different plastic, a bio plastic, mm -hmm. you know, things like that, and kind of come up with alternatives. Um, but yeah, so I'm really against the the stupid plastic. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I think we would tend to agree. Um, and, you know, part of that is just the experience our volunteers have on in the Adopt-A-Beach program. You know, it's, um, I just had somebody ask the other day about food related waste, you know, that we find litter in our program. And it was, I think the number was like 25% of the items picked up are immediately identifiable as food waste or food related waste. But then there's all those smaller pieces. So it's something like almost half of what our volunteers pick up are what we call tiny trash. It's not quite microplastics yet, but it's pieces of bigger things, you know? And so how much of that is, is, you know, from a plastic bottle or straw or who knows what else. So certainly something that we see immediately on the beaches with our volunteers for sure. Yeah. And a lot of it too. I mean, we use the word litter there and I just want to point out to people that it, cause I think when people hear litter, they think people do it intentionally. Mm -hmm. And the, the science yeah. out there actually shows that about half of it, yeah, is intentional, but half of it isn't, mm -hmm. you know? Um, mm -hmm. So we're, we're currently in the, the midst of a, of a river litter survey. So we're collecting trash out of rivers and it's big. We're focused on macro stuff. Um, and, you know, I think the thing that is has been a surprising my students the most is the amount of toys that we find. It's the mm. third most common thing we find. Wow. It's balls and Nerf darts <laughs> and a Barbie doll, you know, and these are not things nobody purposely throws their Barbie doll down the floor, right? You know, this is not intentional. It's, you know, kids go outside and they play with their little Nerf guns and then mom calls them into dinner and they go inside and then it rains and that stuff goes down a storm drain and they're not doing it intentionally, you know, um, and that happens a lot, you know, here in the city of Erie, where I live, people still largely put out their garbage in just bagged garbage, no mm -hmm. bin, um, because up until 10 years ago, you weren't allowed to use a bin um, because of union regulations. And um, so people still put their garbage out, you know, eight o'clock at night in a bag. What could be the harm in that? <laughs> <laughs> because you know in the middle of the night I see you laughing because you know what yeah. happens right yeah we have we have cats we have raccoons um maybe even an alpaca or a sheep <laughs> the um that was alluding to a conversation that happened before this recording um but, you know critters come out in the middle of the night and they they smell that garbage and to them it's you know they smell food because a lot of people do put food waste in their garbage and so they rip those bag open mm -hmm. and every you know you see it every morning after garbage collection there's just litter all down the streets and it's not that people it's so that is unintentional mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. people put their garbage in the place it was supposed to go and the garbage men came and picked it up except for mm -hmm. the stuff that fell out because yeah. the raccoon attacked it and the garbage men don't they don't have time you know to yeah. pick stuff up Mm -hmm. uh, it's also the middle of the night. They probably can't even see it, uh, <laughs> you know? And so then the next morning, you know, there's the evidence and that stuff goes, goes down the drain too. So a lot of it is unintentional, you know, a mm -hmm. lot of it is un unintentional out of the yeah. beaches, you know, it's not like yeah. people like leave stuff behind intentionally. They're like trying to pack up all their kids and all mm -hmm. the stuff and, you know, mm -hmm. a, they don't notice the bag that goes blowing away from the little Debbie snack, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and so I, I just think that that's really important, you know? And so that's where like 
we have to have a changing mindset. You know, this goes back to the stupid plastic. From the point that a company is like, hey, I want to make X, they need to be expecting that the packaging of X or X itself is going to mm-hmm. end up where it's not supposed to. Mm-hmm. So they need to, to be planning it from that perspective. You know, um, if this doesn't end up where it's supposed to, is it going to harm some living organism, including my own child? You know, it's like mm-hmm. I need, need to have them go into that with that mentality, you know, yeah. um, and design their their products and their packaging appropriately for that. Yeah. And you're sort of heading where I was going to go next. You know, it, it, this starts to feel a little overwhelming, right? From a, like, where do we even start to, to address this problem? And I think the the exciting thing about the microbead story is that science ultimately led to policy change, right? You know, there was, yeah, uh, you know, we had your research, you know, people said, well, I don't want plastic in my face wash or my toothpaste or whatever. They started to be a public outcry. Groups like the Alliance for the Great Lakes and Five Gyres and all kinds of organizations jumped in and said, okay, let's figure out a way to um, phase this out of products. And some companies did step forward and do it voluntarily. And then there was state and then ultimately national legislation in the US. And I know there's legislation in Canada or regulations. So I'm sort of curious what you see as the next big plastic policy area that, that we need to tackle as a country. Extended corporate responsibility. It's in the pipeline. It's it's um, and and kind of like with the microbeads, free industry sees that this is a losing battle. Like you know, they they are kind of accepting. Like okay, we you know, there's there's so much plastic pollution out there. There's such an outcry about plastic pollution. Um, we have so much kind of media attention and we keep it going. That's really important is like, we're constantly talking about mm-hmm. this. We're constantly writing stories, doing chats and podcasts mm-hmm. and, you know, it, we keep the pressure on. And so industry is seeing like, okay, this isn't, this isn't going to go away. We can't just, you know, rebrand ourselves the way we did in the eight, the 1980s, um, you know, after the the kind of initial outcry in the seventies and the crying Indian and, you know, they, um, so they're, they're kind of seeing the writing on the wall. So this, this is the next big thing, extended corporate responsibility. And so basically right now, I mean, one of the, everybody is, there's been lots of stories coming out in the last few years about how recycling is not working. It's mm-hmm. a failing system. Um, you should, by the way, recycle what you can. Please, please, please. Um, unfortunately, I think as the reports come out about you know recycling being a failing system, you have more people just not recycling. They're just like, okay, forget it. <laughs> I just yeah. really try. Um, and so our recycling rate as a nation has gone down. Um, and I totally get that. Um, but one of the reasons the recycling is so bad is because it, the the um, onus of, of of supporting it is is on us as taxpayers, and nobody wants to pay more taxes. <laughs> you know, there's not a single no. person out there <laughs> who's like, "Hey, please, yay, please charge me more." Um, you know, so um, it's it's a it's an underfunded. Um, system and it's bad as a result of that you know it needs money in order to support itself and 
So extended corporate responsibility basically puts the, the onus of that recycling infrastructure on the corporations, right? Um, so basic idea, you know, you go to the, to the grocery store to buy some shampoo, you want the shampoo, not the bottle. Right. That's what you're mm-hmm. buying. You're yeah. buying the thing that's inside. You're buying the little Debbie snack, not the wrapper. <laughs> you know, and so whose responsibility really is it that that bottle or that container or that wrapper gets recycled? Is it ours or is it the company? Especially the company who's making millions, if not billions, of dollars mm-hmm. and I am already paying for the product. Should I have to? also pay to recycle it and that's the way right now i mean it just doesn't make sense regardless of kind of where you're on the political spectrum it just like yeah be a fiscal conservative and go you know it makes sense (laughs) doesn't make sense um you know and that so what we're the extended corporate responsibility is shifting it onto the companies to fund the recycling infrastructure um, so that it is done well and done right um, and is, is fully funded. Um, and so that that's what's coming up the pipeline. And I think they do, if I understand correctly, they do a lot of this in Europe already. You know, So this is happening in other parts of the world and it's made the companies, like if you have to be responsible for the end product, they rethink that product and they're like, oh, I guess it doesn't really, it doesn't actually need these five layers of plastic on it or whatever thing you're buying, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, I mean, a lot, most people don't kind of understand, right? If you buy, say, a bottle of water or Gatorade bottle or something like that, the cap is one type of plastic. The bottle is a different kind of plastic. And the wrapper on the bottom is a third kind of plastic. And then you're putting that into a recycle event and they're like, how is that going to be recycled? I mean, that's part of the problem. And yes, when they are all ultimately responsible for making sure that product gets recycled, all of a sudden they look at that product a little bit differently and go, hmm, is there a way that we could make the wrapper, the bottle, and the cap all out of the same plastic? <laughs> and the answer is yes. Yes, yes there is. <laughs> and I know this because at my institution, our number one program, number one program is plastics engineering technology. So we are mm. actually creating the next generation of manufacturers of plastic. It's pretty ironic, I know, considering (laughs) what I do, (laughs) but it has led to a lot of very interesting conversations. You know, we do not agree on everything, but we agree on a lot of things. Um, And, you know, so it really kind of shows that there's a, a pretty good area there where we can work on solutions, again, across the board, regardless of kind of political divides or, you know, studies, you know, kind of where we come Mm -hmm. from in terms of academics. Um, And that's one of them, right? That the cap, the bottle and the wrapper could all be made from the same plastic and that would make recycling those bottles Mm -hmm. a lot easier. Um, So yeah, absolutely. It does change their whole perspective um, on this. Um, and we have another success story. I mean, this isn't the first time like extended corporate responsibility has reared its head here in the United States. We do this in, I think, many states um, with um, electronics. Mm. So electronics mm-hmm. cycling is currently extended corporate responsibility. So any company who manufactures electronics is responsible for helping to support the infrastructure around recycling electronics. Um, and as a consequence, you see the recycling rate of electronics is quite high. Similarly, 
with batteries, um, like car batteries, um, is the same is the same kind of thing. Um, and so the recycling rate for car batteries is somewhere in the ninety percent, and it's because of extended corporate responsibility. This is, you know, I'm so glad that we're ending on kind of a positive, a, a very positive note. You know, there are solutions here. There are ways to tackle this issue. We know what needs to be done. And so, you know, what would you say to our listeners as far as, you know, the maybe top two things that they could start doing right now um, to keep plastic pollution out of the Great Lakes and, and reduce this pollution problem? Well, step one, I would say is focus on yourself. Um, and, um, Ultimately, that's not the, the full solution. It, it has to go upstream. You know, we have to be focusing on industry. But it's really hard. You know, if I was, I often say, like, when I go give public presentations, if I walked into that room in front of, you know, 100 people and, you know, was drinking out of a, a disposable plastic bottle and eating with a disposable plastic fork and, and you know, had was carrying all my stuff in a, in a disposable, you know, grocery bag and was like plastic pollution is bad you all would like not listen to me you'd be like what the heck you're not like practicing what you preach and um and i i think that that's really important so um you know industry is responsible but but we are too right and so um i think it's important for people to kind of look at their own lives and find ways that they can reduce the usage of plastic because that does shift the market Mm -hmm. You know, um, as you pointed out with the microbeads, you know, people were like demanding, I don't want plastic in my face wash. And that mm -hmm. shifted the market and the market. So the industry was like, okay, we aren't going to make products with plastic microbeads. So we should support legislation. And that legislation passed unanimously. That mm -hmm. never happens with environmental <laughs> legislation. You know, both Republicans <laughs> and Democrats were like, yes. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and it's because you shifted the market um, through the consumer demand. So if people, you know, just in the 10 years I've been doing this, you find I now see peanut butter in the grocery store in glass, mm -hmm. not plastic. And I assure you, it's not because all of a sudden they came to some like holy realization or something. It was <laughs> simply that people, they heard people demanding, you know, not to have their peanut butter in plastic. And so they mm -hmm. offer another alternative. Um, and so, you know, finding ways to reduce, you know, remembering your grocery bags, your reusable grocery bags when you go to the store, you know, not taking a straw, especially if you're living close to a body of water like the Great Lakes. I can't tell you how many straws. Balloons. There's got to be another way to like, you know... I, people do balloon release for a lot of reasons, like graduations mm -hmm. and like, you know, remembering somebody who passed away. But there's a lot better ways to do it and with them with balloon releases. I'm, I just found a happy birthday balloon in my river yesterday. Oh, um, so hence, it's really kind of fresh in my mind. And you're just like, you know, and we found we found this great big I love you balloon in the Great Lakes once. And I was like, oh, what better way to show somebody to kill them than to kill the Great Lakes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, just find, you know, find those places. And I, and I tell people, cause it, as you mentioned, it, it can be overwhelming. So just like one product at a time, say, I'm not going to buy bottled water anymore. 
Um, and then beyond that, so I know that that was only one. And like, yeah. Yeah, that was like five minutes on one. But the second thing that I would say is to engage um, in, in, you know, your government process, you know, engage, contact your representatives and tell them you want, you know, them to focus on legislation that will help to reduce plastic pollution. Um, and there's a great um, suite of legislation that has been reintroduced um, called the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is extended corporate responsibility. But anytime people can call up their representatives and, you know, do it every day, <laughs> you know? yeah, and and just tell them, and you think that they don't listen, but they do mm-hmm. listen. And you know, when you're talking about any, you know, any kind of um, issue, and you're like, why aren't they acting? They are. They're acting yeah. based on the calls they get, and you mm-hmm. know, more calls in one perspective than your perspective. It's because you're not voicing your perspective and, and other people in your kind of, you know, wheelhouse are not, are not voicing that. So um, really encourage people to be engaged in that process. Yeah, for sure. And we do have some, I can't let it go and say that we have some resources on our website, including a toolkit that gives people tips for how they can connect in their community, you know, like with your city council or your parks department or whatever it might be starting at that small level ultimately it it adds up right you got to start somewhere absolutely yes 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 you know we're coming up to midterms and people love to vote in those every four-year elections but goodness gracious these midterms are so critically important Mm -hmm. and that's where you see the smaller things you know voting for your city council, your county Mm -hmm. council, you know, getting engaged on that kind of level absolutely makes a huge impact. I mean, if you feel like your voice doesn't count, go out and vote for the city council because those things are won on the order of like five, 10 votes. Mm -hmm. So your voice counts there. I tell you. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, Sherry, Sam, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today about this really important topic. I appreciate the conversation and uh, thank you so much for all of the work you do and all of your research on this issue. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I have a quick programming note for you all. We're taking a break for the summer and we'll be back in September with new episodes. And don't forget, on our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, You'll find links to resources from today's episode and all of the topics that we've talked about in previous episodes. You can also sign up for updates to stay in the know about Great Lakes issues and opportunities to get involved. And finally, a big thank you to my colleague, Michelle Farley, who produces this podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode drops. Have a great summer and talk to you in the fall.